Good morning. Well, I'm glad that Bill read that scripture because it ties into the scripture we'll be looking at this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, as we begin a series of studies that will be in for quite some time in the book of Genesis, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Bill just read John 1.1, where we see that that God that created all things is, is Jesus Christ. No other than Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as one in all of creation. You know, I brought my Bible up. I realized in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I got that much memorized. Genesis 1.1. I'm not going to probably need to open the Bible because that's it for today. There is so much in that one verse. And before we even get into that verse, I would like the opportunity to share with you some background on the book of Genesis. So as we go through this book, you'll have an understanding of who wrote it, why it was written, when it was written, and how it's organized. And that should help you, all of us, as we go through this long study, it'll be, it'll be uh, probably well over a year. But I'm looking forward to going back now on a, on a Sunday morning into the Old Testament. Most of our studies, not all, but most of our studies on Sunday mornings have been over the last 20 years uh, in the New Testament. We did the book of Psalms. We've also done Daniel. And there have been moments where we've had messages from the Old Testament. But years ago, the Lord laid upon my heart while we were still in the Gospels, <clears throat> that when we finished the Gospels and the book of Acts, that, and then, of course, we did Daniel and Revelation, that we would then go into the book of Genesis, where I think a lot of people are confused about the creation of mankind and the creation of the heavens and the earth. And also, today, we're finding that we're confused about a lot of things that God set in motion, not just creation, but <laughs> gender, for one thing marriage for another. There are many things that our world is confused about, and there need not be any confusion because God has given us his word. Amen? In the book of Genesis, clearing any confusion that might exist relating to those and many other topics. So let's open in a word of prayer. I'm going to share with you for a little bit, a few minutes, about the book, and then we'll look at verse 1. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God, that you created all things out of nothing, and you created them that you might have an environment to interact with and have a relationship with your creation, all creation, but especially those of us human beings who are created in your image. We now understand that you want to speak to us from this book of beginnings. You want to show us the truth of your word, as set forth right in the beginning, that we may not be confused at all in this wicked world, and that we may be able to understand all of the Bible, because this book is foundational to all scripture. We now ask you to speak to our hearts and encourage us, Lord, we need to be encouraged. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the writer of the first five books of the Bible is Moses. These are the books of Moses, who was the deliverer of Israel. His name in Hebrew, Moshe, 
actually means drawn out. Reason being, he was drawn out of the Nile by the Egyptians. You'll remember. He was educated in the palace of Pharaoh and instructed in all the ways and wisdom and learning of the Egyptians. So, unlike many of his time, many Jews or Hebrews of that time, he obviously had the literary skills necessary to pen God's word. Interesting how God orchestrated that. He probably knew more about previous world history in his lifetime than anyone knows now, given his learning and his knowledge that he was well-educated and had access in Pharaoh's court, in Pharaoh's kingdom, to all the current information at that time that was available. His personal history is found within the four books of the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which I imagine we'll get to eventually. But his name occurs frequently in the Psalms and the prophetic books, and he's recognized actually as the chief of the prophets, in addition to being the deliverer of Israel. He's mentioned frequently in the New Testament as well. He's referred to as representing the law and as a type of Christ in some portions of Scripture. By the way, I find this interesting. He's the only character in the Old Testament to whom Christ likens himself. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, this likeness between Moses and Christ is specifically addressed. So it becomes a type of the law, but also a type of Jesus Christ, because <clears throat> while Moses brought the law and Jesus Christ through grace saved us, it's also true that Moses is a deliverer and Christ has delivered us from our sins. Amen? Now Jude, in the book of Jude, second to last book of the Bible, Jude mentions a contention between the archangel Michael and the devil concerning Moses' body. So Moses comes up a lot in the New Testament. In fact, he has a cameo. You'll remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus is there, and And that's quite a scene. So the point I'm trying to make is Moses is no stranger to all of Scripture. He features very prominently, maybe second only to Jesus. Now, as far as the date or the style or the subject of this book, the five books of Moses were collectively called the Pentateuch or the Torah. You may have heard either of those two phrases used to describe the five books of Moses which would be uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of the law. The word Pentateuch is a Greek word, and it means the fivefold book. So that's actually a pretty good name for the Pentateuch. Uh, The translators of the Greek Old Testament probably divided the Torah into these five books. So the Jews may not have had that division. Uh, In fact, the names by which these books are generally known are, in fact, Greek because of the Septuagint Greek, which was translated about 300 years, roughly 300 years, before Christ, which shows us that the Old Testament was clearly written and translated into at least one other language long before Jesus began to fulfill many of the prophecies contained in the Old Testament. And that helps us to trust our Bibles. Amen? Now, Torah is a Hebrew word, and it means the law. Pretty simple. 
There are four major themes which are never far below the surface of the Torah. And they are election, that is being chosen by God, covenant, which is God's promise and agreement with his people, the law, and exodus or deliverance. The theme of exodus runs throughout the whole Bible. Us being delivered from our sins through Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that type. The first book is called by the Jews Bereshith, which means in the beginning. And the reason they call it that is because that's the first word of the book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. In fact, Genesis, the theme of the entire book, the book of beginnings. The book of beginnings. This is the beginning of everything, really, as it relates to our universe. Now, it's generally known among Christians by the name of Genesis, which means creation or generation. This is the name given to it, given to it in the Septuagint because it gives an account of the origin of all things. So many people in our world today are confused about how we got here. Uh, they're spending gazillions of dollars exploring space with the hope of trying to figure out how we got here, and yet you can get a free Bible, here at least at the church, in many places you can get a free Bible, and all you really need is the first verse of the first page, in fact, the first half of the first verse of the first page, and you can save yourself a lot of time and energy and money. Because we know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? This book contains the history of at least 2,369 years, the book of Genesis. It may even cover more of a substantial period of time if some of the genealogies of chapters 5 through 11 are abridged. Many times genealogies are not complete. They'll leave out generations. So that may be the case. It may be even more years. There's a lot of history in this book. That's the point. Over 2,000 years of history we'll be looking at. Now, it may cover a lot of time, but it covers it in a way where it describes the steps that led to the establishment of the Jewish theocracy. And that's what we're covering here, but we have to go back to the beginning to understand how they got there. The book of Genesis was probably written during Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, which would date this, I believe, to 1446 to 1406 B.C. So roughly 14 to 1500 years before Christ. Give you an idea of when these books were more than likely written. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, no doubt relied heavily on the sacred oral traditions of his time. He heard the accounts from the Hebrews. He would not have been necessarily raised with as much of that, but as he was rejected from the Egyptians because of his uh, murdering an Egyptian taskmaster, he then had many years to learn the truth of creation, which would have been in conflict with the things he probably was raised with in the Egyptian court. But he learned and wrote these things down and collected the information that existed at that time. I'm sure he made use of whatever ancient documents may have existed. And again, in Egypt, there were many at that time. Now, the first few chapters are certainly made up of selections from very ancient documents, very ancient, far before Moses. In fact, the entire book of Genesis predates Moses. They are clearly, these chapters, are clearly drawing upon sources from various authors at different periods of time. 
So he's compiling information. But regardless of the source information, the hand of Moses is clearly seen throughout its composition because he compiled the information and communicated from the source to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, the book of Genesis is divided into two principal parts. Chapters 1 through 11 give the general history of mankind down to the time of the dispersion after the Tower of Babel. In fact, chapters 1 through 5 give us the account from Adam to Noah. Chapters 6 through 11, the account from Noah to Abraham. So that's what we'll be looking at in the first half. And then, of course, the second half, chapters 12 through 50, present an early history of Israel down to the death and burial of Joseph. So, Joseph, the son of Jacob. The literary structure of this book can be organized around one word. And you're going to hear me use this word a lot. It's the Hebrew word for generations. It's toledoth. Toledoth is an important word. In fact, the Greek word for this Hebrew word is the word used as the book's title in our English Bibles, Genesis. So Genesis is, in fact, the Greek word translated from Toledoth. Now let me explain why this is important. Because Moses uses this word Toledoth, or generations, or Genesis, ten times in this book to indicate the major divisions. It's important when you're studying this book to know where these divisions are. It helps you to understand what portions were written by what people and at what time. So think about it this way. There's, there's actually 11, but there's, there's like 11 separate sections in this book. And if you understand it that way, it becomes easier to interpret it and to understand it. So I'm going to point those things out. In fact, it's pretty easy to know where they happen because each major division can be reorganized or recognized by the recurring phrase, this is the account of whoever, whomever. This is the account of Toledoth. This is the account of... And this represents the signatures of the respective writers as they concluded their individual accounts. So imagine if you were writing a complete history of the United States of America, and you had 10 or 11 sources. And so you took the writings of, let's say, John Adams, or you took the writings of George Washington or Alexander Hamilton, and you decided to put them in successive order, and you just you wanted to compile the history from different sources. You might get to the end of George Washington's account and says, and this is the account of George Washington. And this is the account of the next person and the next person. So you're actually compiling pre-existing sources, but you're giving credit to those sources. Anyone here ever write a term paper? If you've written a term paper, you know the, the, the right way to do this is to have a bibliography. Cite your sources. Genesis is a book of sources. And so Moses cites his sources. And it helps a lot to understand this book. There are, as I've said, 11 such documents within the book of Genesis. It starts with the first one we'll be looking at for some weeks. The generations of, or the Toledoth, the generations of the heavens and the earth. That'll take us chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 4. The generations, or the account of, the heavens and the earth. Then we have the generations of Adam in chapters 2 through 5. Then we have the generations of Noah in chapters 5 into chapter 6. We have the generations of the sons of Noah. 
And then the generations of Shem and of Terah, who was Abraham's father. The generations of Abraham's son Isaac. And then Abraham's son Ishmael also has a section here, which was incorporated by Isaac. You have the generations of Jacob, the generations of Esau, which were incorporated by Jacob. So all of the history known at that time was recorded. This isn't prehistoric. This history has been preserved, going back to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Finally, we have the generations of the sons of Jacob. And that's where we have the account of Joseph. And this was incorporated by Moses, which would have been relatively recent history for him. Living in Egypt at the time, shortly after that Joseph had actually ruled Egypt. So I say that so you'll understand. This isn't a myth. This isn't somebody sat down and made up a story that we can read our kids at bedtime. This is, in fact, the truth. And it's legitimate, pre-recorded history that was compiled by a historian. So why do so many people, oh my goodness, Christians, look at this book as a fairy tale? I don't understand it. Because if you understand the literary structure of the book, and the source documentation, and the legitimacy and historical significance of the author, you would never in a moment question the book. But what the devil has done in our world is made us believe somehow that this book isn't correct and our science and all of its wonder and glory has somehow figured out what the book of Genesis tells us isn't true, apparently, and that something that's even harder to believe in is. And and I'm very strong on this because if we don't start with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we're going to be confused about everything. Our world, we're confused about everything. Because we've gotten away from the truth of Genesis 1. 1. And what really frustrates me is when Christians try to reconcile our feeble explanation of creation or the definition of marriage or the designation or understanding of gender, they try to reconcile what the Bible says with what the world says, and it cannot be done. Pick a side. Right up front in Genesis 1, because from here on in, there is no room for wavering between evolution, gender fluidity, marriage equality, I guess they call it now. There's no room for it. So having said that, and having possibly offended some of you, I hope not. You are in a church after all. Say amen. Amen. You can trust this book. The New Testament contains at least 200 direct quotations or clear allusions to events described in the book of Genesis. So if you don't believe the book of Genesis, you don't believe the New Testament either. Don't tell me you can believe in one and not the other. And Jesus referred to many of the events in the book of Genesis and the other books of the Old Testament. So then, if the Old Testament's no good, then the New Testament's no good, then Jesus is a liar, and what are you doing in church after all? The book does contain several prophecies of the coming Messiah. We'll look at them. It starts in chapter 3, verse 15, but we'll look at all of them. Uh, We can be certain that the events... Described in Genesis, again, are not merely ancient legends or religious allegories. This is history. 
These are eyewitness accounts of the places, events, and people of those early days of Earth's history. These accounts were written by men who were there and then transmitted the information down to Moses. It was Moses, again, who finally compiled and edited them into a permanent record from those ancient times. So, I have gone to great lengths to prepare you for this study so that your compass is properly calibrated. So you know where true north is. So we start with the truth. Everything else that happens after that lines up with this truth, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? So as now we look at the history of mankind, and as we consider the generations of the heavens and the earth, we start with the first day of creation. And we're not even going to get through the, the whole first day, just the first verse. Chapter uh, 1, verse 2 handles some more of it. And then chapters three, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 handle the rest of it. But we're not going there. We're going to take our time because this is so vitally important. And there's a lot I'd like to share with you. In the beginning... In the beginning. Now that's amazing to me because in the beginning means a lot more than you might, might imagine. A lot of us think of beginnings as, oh, the beginning, that means there was nothing before the beginning. Of course, that's not true. When we say the beginning, we're not talking about God in the beginning. We're talking about in the beginning, God. If you understand sentence structure, in the beginning, God means that God existed before the beginning. Amen? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, if God is going to create the heavens and the earth in the beginning, then God exists before the beginning. So there should be no question about that. God is eternal, without a beginning, and pre-existent to the creation of the universe. That has to be established and accepted first. Now, got any math geeks here? Math geeks, you can admit it, I'm a math geek. Wouldn't that be cruel if I said, oh, you know, I'm not, no. I know I am a real math geek. In fact, when I was in high school, my favorite class was geometry. And the amazing thing about geometry is it's based on postulates. That is, we assume something's true. And then we build theorems on the assumptions like a postulate might be that a point exists in space, that a distance between two points is a line, or that a, 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 a flat area between several points can be called a plane. You can't prove that. That has to be assumed. You have to take that and it's postulated. You postulate that, and then you have a theorem you build on that, and you think, well, this is all nonsense. Well, it's not nonsense, because if you've ever seen a building like this, or if you've ever driven over a bridge... Geometry is at the source of being able to actually build a bridge. Engineering requires this geometry in order to be functional. So, yes, you make an assumption that you can't prove, and then based on that assumption, you build theorems, and then you build bridges with it, and then you can look back and say, well, I guess if that bridge exists, I guessed the postulates were true. The things I took a moment of faith with, have been proven to be true in reality. And that's what Christians do. We do not have blind faith. We have faith in the unseen God, who before the beginning existed. And the result of that faith shows us 
that there's a creation and we look back and we say, well, it must be true that there was a creator. So that's how Christians come to an understanding of what we call intelligent design. I'll talk a little bit about that this morning as well. Listen, this book does not attempt to prove God's existence to us. God's word doesn't try to do that. It's a postulate. You have to accept it. It's just true. Well, how do we know? Take a look around. Does this creation exist? Is it intelligent in its design? Does it look like it just sprung out of nowhere and just sort of happened? Did aliens come and seed the earth? You know, these are all the explanations that people want to give you to get away from in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God's origin is not explained, for he simply is, has always been, and will always be. Amen? That is the postulate. It is not our job, nor is it necessary, to try to explain that truth. It is simply a truth that once received allows us to make sense out of all creation. And that's the point. By the way, the word for God in this chapter is a uniplural word. It's Elohim. If you're going to speak of God as a single person, you'd say El, like El Shaddai. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for two people described in that would be Elah. But if it's more than two, let's say three, it would be Elohim. It's the Godhead who created the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, a singular word will not suffice. It must be a plural word. And that's why sometimes in the book of Genesis, you'll see the pronouns our and us used when God is speaking. Because it's a plural word. It's actually correct to use that pronoun. By the way, this is one of those instances where it is actually correct to use a plural pronoun. All three members of the Godhead were active in creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You can see God the Father described as the creator in Job. You can see God the Son described as the creator. And Bill read it for us this morning in John's Gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Also in Colossians chapter 1. And then God the Holy Spirit in Genesis, we'll see next week, and also in Job, is described as the creator. So who's the creator? Is it God the Father? Is it God the Son? Is it God the Holy Spirit? One of my favorite answers. Yes, yes, and yes. The Godhead, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Now I want to show you something. Because that is a simplified version of all physics. Actually, everything you see in our universe today is described by science in the same way that the Bible presents it. See, science is just an observation, at least it's supposed to be, an observation of things that are factual. Unfortunately, lately, science has become political. Science has become manipulative. Science has given over to uh, what certain people want science to say or, or be. And so science is no longer reliable in our culture. But true science is reliable. It's an observation of facts. And what scientists, true scientists, have been able to determine is that our universe was created at some point in time. And the universe consists of basically two things in time. And all of this is dimensionality. The general theory of relativity bears this out. I'm not going to get a chalkboard and try to show it to you because I'm not that smart. But I can tell you this. It tells us that there are two things. There are matter. There's matter. 
and space that that matter exists in. Matter and space. And the matter is in the space, and it begins at a specific time. It exists in a time-controlled environment. Okay, that we know from science. Let me show you something. Watch this. The Godhead, Elohim, created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter, in the beginning, time. You see that? That one verse unlocks the truth of all physics, all science. It's not contrary to true science. It is simply a simplified explanation of the truth that anyone can understand. In the beginning, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, the matter that exists in that space. And this is in the beginning, which tells us, well, it didn't just exist. There's a time in which it exists and wasn't and is and now still is. The timeline continues. We perceive and recognize time. Because God created not only space and matter, he created time. And that means there's motion and movement. And if you know about the perceived dimensionality uh, of, our, of our universe, you know that there's matter, right, in space, height, width, length, the three dimensions, right, and then time, the fourth dimension. So, you, so it all lines up with science. That's the point. I'm not trying to be Bill Nye the science guy here. I just want you to understand, you do not have an unintelligent faith. Your faith in God is an intelligent faith that's proven by science, not contrary to science, or contrary to science falsely so-called, as the Bible describes it. Now, the triune God created, the word for created in Hebrew is bara. It's different than the other word that's used throughout the Bible, asa. It means to create out of nothing. In Latin, ex nihilo. It means out of nothing you created the universe. And when we say the universe, we mean space, time, and matter. Any scientist would agree with that statement except that God created it out of nothing. That's the part they have a hard time with. That he created out of nothing space, time, and matter. The concept of the special creation of the universe is unique to the book of Genesis in chapter 1, verse 1. There is no other story that describes what we call the cosmogony or the description of creation other than Genesis 1. No other cosmogony even mentions the absolute origin of the universe. It doesn't even try to explain it because it's beyond explanation. The Bible mentions it, but it doesn't explain it because it has to be assumed to be true for everything else to make sense. It's a postulate. All begin with the universe. All the creation accounts of our many cultures begin with the universe already existing in a primeval state of chaos. This is the only one that tells us how it all started. Then these stories of creation attempt to speculate how it might have evolved into its present form. But the book of Genesis tells us that it was created as it is. Evolutionism, which is science falsely so-called, it's not science at all. It's a theory. It's a bad theory. It makes no sense. There's nothing perceived in our universe today that would suggest that it's a valid theory. But it's a theory. Oh, I can have a theory. Anyone can have a theory. I can have a theory that uh, it's possible for me to walk on my hands out that door and out onto the street. And with a lot of practice, it might actually happen, but I'm doubting that that will probably happen. But it's still a theory that I could do it. 
But it doesn't mean it's true. See, what we have been indoctrinated with since my days in school, when evolution was taught as a comparative or contrasting theory with creationism, uh, we've been taught to believe that it's an acceptable theory. It's a bad theory. It's been proven wrong. There's never been an example anywhere in the universe where evolution has even been remotely identified. You might say mutation. Mutation is not evolution. Very different things. Okay, so let's be clear on that. Evolution, the theory of, begins with, check this out, elementary particles of matter evolving out of nothing on their own. Does that make any sense? Look around. There's intelligent design in our universe. If you, if you were to see me driving down this street in my Buick, would you think that that Buick just suddenly appeared in my driveway? All organized with computerized fuel injection and flip down seats? No, I don't think so. You would say, oh, he went somewhere that they built that car. Somebody designed that car, GM, and, and Pastor Tim got a good deal during COVID. <laughs> I did. So that we understand. But if you say, well, look at this beautiful universe. Look at the leaf on a tree. Look at a precious child. Look at your hand. Your eye, your brain, your digestive system, your nervous system, all of these things. And you really think, you really think that is less complicated than my Buick? So when you tell me it just came out of nowhere over bazillions of years, I look at you and I laugh. Because I think you really got to have more faith than I have to believe that that could be true. And faith in what? Faith in nonsense, really. Well, now you know how I feel. Evolution begins with elementary particles of matter evolving out of nothing. That makes no sense. They refer to this as the Big Bang Theory, not the television show. The Big Bang Theory. Intelligent design. You can have a conversation about intelligent design with anyone, and especially science uh, professionals. Intelligent design is proven by, now I'm going to get a little geeky and technical here, it's proven by the law of causality. I'm going to explain. This law states, and this is the law that we observe in science, it states that no effect can be greater than its cause. No effect can be greater than its cause. And yet evolution would suggest that all of this evolved out of nothing. Well, that breaks that law. The cause of creation is God, amen? And therefore, creation isn't greater than God. The effect is his creation, but God is the creator. And an intelligent and complex universe that we have clearly perceived and begun to understand maybe a little bit is itself proof of an intelligent creator. I've already used the example of my car. There are many examples I could use, but I think I've made my point. This so-called Big Bang Theory contradicts the first law of thermodynamics. For example, the first law states that no matter or energy is now being created or destroyed. No matter or energy is now being created or destroyed. You didn't realize you're going to science class this morning. You thought, I'm going to church. They teach fairy tales. No, we teach science, the truth, from the Bible, verse 1, chapter 1 in the book of Genesis. The first law states no matter or energy is now being created or destroyed. The universe must have been created 
But the first law precludes the possibility of its self-creation. So you'd have to break the law of causality, the first law of thermodynamics. How about the second law of thermodynamics? The second law states that all existing matter and energy is proceeding irreversibly toward ultimate equilibrium and secession of all processes. That means that the universe is eventually going to run out, which is consistent with what the Bible teaches that eventually it's no longer going to exist. We know in the beginning it was created, and at some point it will be destroyed and recreated. We talked about that in the book of Revelation. So the second law states, all existing matter and energy is proceeding irreversibly toward ultimate equilibrium. That is, it just kind of reaches a point where it stops. And secession of all processes. That's the death of the universe. It's going to happen. By the way, not in a few years because of climate change. It'll happen when God says it's going to happen. Amen? Since this eventual death of the universe has not yet occurred. Look around. Has it occurred? We still here? Okay, it hasn't occurred. And since it will occur in time, which God created, if these processes continue, the second law of thermodynamics proves that the universe, space, time, and matter, had a beginning. I know this is heady stuff, But you have to teach your children, who some of your children may be going to public school, the truth. And this will be recorded. And you can can pare it down. You don't have to go into all these details necessarily with the youngest ones. But you guys need to start teaching your children the truth about science. And what the Bible says, it's a non-scientific book, but it's, it's the truth. And therefore, any true science is going to reflect properly on the truth. So I'm giving you information. These are laws that those who who study physics and other scientists embrace. And you can show them from these laws that their theories don't make any sense. I'd love to hear their explanation. They almost never make sense. Because how could they? Okay. Now I went a long way this morning to give you the understanding of, in the beginning, time, God created the heavens and the earth, right? We're going to see that in order to do that, he needed space and matter in time. And that's exactly what that verse tells us. Now, this is a very special verse. In fact, the Bible is amazing. You need to know that Hebrew numbers are, in fact, letters. What are you talking about, Pastor? You ever look at a clock with Roman numerals? You guys have done this your whole life. You just probably never really thought about it. What's an X? What's an X? Okay, how about a V? Hmm, okay. Should I go a little bit further? (laughs) An L? 50, right. A C? An M? Guess you guys understand the concept of a language having letters that not only are letters, but are also numbers. The understanding of our current system of numbers came many years later. I believe it came from the area of the Middle East. Egypt, Phoenicians, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but here's the point. Here's the point. If you look at Hebrew as a language of letters, but also letters that mean or, signi- or, or signify numbers, they have dual meanings, something absolutely amazing bears out in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a man uh, who studied this very closely before computers. His name is Ivan Panin. And he carefully examined 
the Hebrew text of Genesis 1-1, and this is what he found. He discovered in verse 1, there's an incredible phenomenon of multiples of seven. Multiples of seven. In, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Multiples of seven. What do I mean? Well, he discovered 30 separate codes involving the number of seven. I'm going to go through this quickly. If you want the information, you can Google Ivan Panin, and you will absolutely find all of this and more information. And if you don't have access to the internet, what century are you in? But anyway, you can also email me and I'll send it to you. How about that? At least go on the computer before you email me, okay? But here we go. He discovered 30 separate codes involving the number seven. There are seven Hebrew words containing a total of 28 letters, seven times four. The first three words for in the beginning God created, because the Hebrew words are a little different than the English words, in the beginning God created have 14 letters, seven times two. The last four words for the heavens and the earth have 14 letters. The fourth and the fifth words have seven letters. The sixth and the seventh words have seven letters. The three key words, God, heaven, and earth, have 14 letters. The number of letters in the four remaining words is also 14. The shortest word in the verse is in the middle. It's the middle word with two letters, but the third and the fifth words that surround it both have five letters. Two plus five is? This is a mathematical wonder, which simply cannot be explained by chance. If you tried to write a sentence with Hebrew letters that had all of these multiples of sevens. Now, obviously, I only gave you a handful. I said there were 30. I I think I've exhausted the point. The point I'm trying to make is if you tried to write a sentence like that, good luck. You might need AI to do it. Oh, Pastor Tim, are you saying that AI is God? No, what I'm saying is AI is a cheap imitation of someone who's intelligent. And sadly today, there are less and less intelligent people. So artificial intelligence has started to become better than actual intelligence because there's very little of that left. Don't put your faith in artificial intelligence. Put your faith in the word of God. Amen? Now, the number seven appears repeatedly in the Bible. We know this. It's a symbol of divine perfection. And would it make sense that the very first verse of the Bible is the word of God, and it, it, it's so perfect that it has all these numerical qualities. It, it's a hint at, at God's signature. There were seven days of creation. God rested on the seventh day. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We saw that. Seven angels in the book of Revelation in our studies. Now, some have looked at this and referred to this astonishing pattern of sevens as the signature of God. And I think that really explains it. Such that when God actually speaks, even the language is perfect. So perfect that even numerically for you math geeks, like myself, it bears out that this is not a human speaking. This is the voice of God. The opening verse of the Bible is unique. These are probably the first words ever written down. They may have been revealed to Adam or even written directly by God himself, but what we know now is that we can trust the truth that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he wants a relationship with you. See, you're matter. You matter, but you are also matter. 
and you exist in this space, this space that we exist in, and you exist at a specific time. And the Bible tells us that today is the acceptable day of salvation. This time, this moment, right now, in time. See, we understand time. There was a yesterday, there's a tomorrow, there's a today. And right now, the truth of God's word has been presented to you not so that you could beat people in Bible trivia. I have that game. No one ever wants to play it with me. Actually, uh, John's mom said, oh, Pastor Tim, I'll play you in Bible trivia. I bet she's pretty good. But here's the thing. Listen, I've shared these things with you not to amaze you or to give you ammunition to go beat up on some evolutionists. I'm trying to convey to you that you have an intelligent faith in an intelligent designer who is an intelligent God who loves you and has given his word to you so you will have a relationship with him. But you see, it wouldn't have been enough to just say, oh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in like perfect language. He needed to communicate to us his love. And I'm going to admit, this verse does not do that. He could have been an evil creator, and this could still be true. But we know because of what Bill read in our opening this morning, that he's a good God. Because in the companion verse, really, in John's gospel, and I'll read it again as we close, in chapter 1, in verse 1, we read, in the beginning was the word. Now, this is a little different because now we're, now we're thinking, okay, in the same beginning that God created the heavens and the earth, but there's something different. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. That is, when time was created, when, when time and space and matter were created. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that had been made or has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then we learn a little about John the Baptist. And then we get to verse 14. This is where I want to end. That Word is God and was God and will always be God. The Word became flesh. I want you to do what Eddie Mack does this. Flesh. Reminding us that we are but flesh. Right, Eddie? God became this. Jesus became matter. Because you matter. Because I matter. We matter. And he entered space at a specific time. And he's coming back again at a specific time. In a renewed, resurrected flesh. Back into the space that he entered in the past. You need to understand, it's like, all of a sudden it all starts to become more clear when we look at it that way. It says, the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling with us. That is, he tabernacled with us, set up a tent, pitched his tent. He is with us. He came to be with John, but he's coming again. And that is the importance that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now listen, we know this truth, that he came, he died on a cross for our sins, he rose again on the third day, 
He ascended into heaven, out of this universe, back into the place where God dwells outside of creation, from where God created all things. And there he ever lives to make intercession. He's praying for us. Before the throne of God, as the Son of God, praying in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is God, Elohim, praying for us. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we'll all be judged, as we saw in our studies in Revelation, we're all going to be judged based on one fundamental question. Not whether or not you believe what I said today, by the way. I want to be clear. There are people who are saved who are confused. Can I say that? They're confused about a lot of things. But if they're not confused about what I just shared with you now, which is that Jesus came, died on the cross, and rose again, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead, if they believe that and they've claimed Christ as their Lord and Savior, to as many as believed them, he gave them the right to be called the children of God, to as many as received him, then they're saved and you're saved. But we don't want you to stay in a confused state about the creation of all things either. But understand something. Jesus so loved us that he gave his life. We can be confused in this world. We can be mistaken about things. But you'll be judged on the basis of what you did with that fundamental truth of the gospel. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you newness of life and is coming again to usher you into his kingdom on this earth and in heaven, then you have nothing to fear about the future. For you belong to him, the God who loved you so that he created the universe so that you could exist and then died so that you could be saved and is coming again that you might be blessed. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. This is a precious verse in Scripture. We've learned a lot today. We'll probably forget most of the details. But the most important truth we won't forget. We've committed our lives to this truth. The truth that you love us, died for us, rose again, and are coming again for us. We give our hearts to you afresh and anew, Lord. We acknowledge the truth that you are God. You are one of three, the Godhead, But as the Godhead, we worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us this week in the face of a world that is so completely confused that it doesn't even know which end is up, that we would be strong in our beliefs, concrete in our resolve to share them, and constant and unwavering in our embracing of these fundamental truths of not only the creation of the universe, but our salvation through Jesus Christ. And I pray for every heart here that maybe this morning uh, some hearts were convinced where they weren't before. And I would thank you for that. Maybe some who listen online will be convinced, and I thank you for that. But regardless of whether people embrace this or not, it's still true. And help all of us, those of us who embrace this as truth, to be strong in our faith, our intelligent faith in an intelligent creator who intelligently designed an intelligent universe. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.